Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. That's C-L-U-B-B-C-H-I-M-E-R-A.com. We kick off the fourth season of the CCMA podcast with my old friend, the former professional wrestler, performance artist, actor, personal trainer and martial artist, Phil Bedwell, in The Blood Is Real. Phil's early martial arts days were in Wadaru and Shotokan Karate, from which he transitioned into amateur boxing, then professional wrestling at Andre Baker's Hammerlock School. Professional wrestling has its roots in the competitive catch-as-catch-can wrestling, a form of submission grappling, and the Hammerlock School taught elements of Sambo and freestyle wrestling. Phil's main coach was the accomplished freestyle wrestler Justin Richardson. Phil was very much the exemplification of the new British wrestling scene, leaning heavily into the extreme wrestling promoted by my former business partner, the wrestler Stu Allen, and I. Phil even helped found his own promotion, Lucha Britannia, and gained experience working at corporate events in Reading, Leeds, at the Download Festival, and worked in promotional sketches for Channel 4 and MTV. Phil's thirst for new martial arts information continued even as he began to wind down his wrestling career. He later took up Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, both in the Gi and No Gi form, under Ronin MMA in Hackney Central. These days, Phil splits his time between working as a personal trainer and a multifaceted performer, as well as hosting his excellent podcast, Slouching Towards Masculinity. In addition to martial arts, Phil's 20-year background in fitness and health includes vinyasa and yin yoga, breath work and meditation, Olympic weightlifting, kettlebells and corrective movement. He's also an enthusiastic freediver and indoor climber. His training in martial arts and professional wrestling, coupled with an explorative mind, opened up several new and challenging opportunities for Phil in art and drama in the UK and Europe. This is where we find Phil today. He's worked in immersive theatre, performing in Maria Tukarniski's Tarot Drome at the Old Vic Tunnels, and explored the art of Boyless, Cabaret and Soho for four years, before he appeared in the acclaimed Double R Club. His performance art has included producing original works at the King's College London, Spill Festival of Performance in Ipswich, the Steakhouse Live Festival and the Unshut Festival in Sheffield. He's appeared in short films such as Nina Davis's Two Performers Begin Standing in Opposite Corners of the Room and taken to the stage with Vadim Zokharov's Tunguska event at the Whitechapel Gallery. Achieving a lifetime dream of portraying a villain in a horror movie, Phil plays the part of Velos in the short film Blue Bodies, currently in production. Welcome to the podcast, Phil Bedwell. Thank Phil, you. it's great to have you on the show. This is the inaugural interview for this season, and I couldn't think of a better person to kick things off with. How have you been? Oh, I've been well. Yeah, actually, things have been looking up, mate. I always stay pretty positive, but um, the way the way things are now, oh, I can see a very bright future. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm feeling good, mate. I've, thank you for that introduction as well. I feel very privileged to be the inaugural guest. Um, thank you. Really means a lot. Well, eclecticism is something that's associated with my show, and it's it's always been a show that's been about ideas, and eclecticism is something that's often been associated with me, so I couldn't think of a better person to start things off and to set the tone than than somebody who's also uh, a bit of a chimera themselves. Your your career is multifaceted, to say the least, isn't it? Yeah. I first met you as a professional wrestler back in 1999. Um, Yeah, to get an idea again, to talk about how we're mixing things up you debuted on a hybrid pro wrestling kickboxing show that we were doing in Chippenham 
So there you go. So that was an experimental style show that uh, didn't go very well, but we met you and we met Paul, your tag team partner. Back in the days when I was a co-promoter of Extreme World Warfare and was doing my martial arts performance. And you were part of a tag team that you called uh, The New Breed. And immediately from the start, we had similar interests. You were a fan of the feature film, the Alex Price feature film based on the James O'Barr graphic novel and uh, comic book series, The Crow. And you took your name, didn't you? Your first, was it, I don't know if it was your first wrestling name, but it was the first wrestling name I knew by Curve, didn't you? That's right, yeah. Iggy, Iggy Pop's character in The Crow's Heat of Angels, which is highly underrated in the original director's cut by, I think it's Alex Parases, is actually really good. It's a shame that one didn't see the light of day. You can see it on YouTube now. But yeah, I actually think for tone, it was a very, very underrated film. Very good. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Probably even more biased by the fact that I was so um, into the first movie and, and looking forward to the second one that I bought loads of memorabilia, I remember, at the time. And it mm. was a big inspiration for the Dead Souls oh, yeah, my martial arts act. Uh, very much, you could see, I, I took a lot from The Crow. And this, there was loads of stuff out in City of Angels. And so I got a movie book, the book of the film. Uh, yes. and, uh, and I just read so much that was being put into this film. You could see there was just so much uh, love and energy being put into it. And including, mm. you know, Obar was in the creator of The Crow, was was heavily involved with it. I mean, yeah, it pales in comparison to the original. But the tone's good. And I don't think it's fair to say it was a clone of the first movie. So. Not at all. I think Mia Kirshner done a really good job. Vincent Perez done an amazing job, not just being a Brandon Lee ripoff. And in ways, I would say actually tonally it got, I mean, nothing will ever beat the comic book for me or the graphic novel. I still read the graphic novel now. But I think in ways with the colours and the filters, I thought they did some really beautiful imagery that was very much in keeping with the comic book, maybe even, like I say, more so than the original film. Yeah, the, the colour palette, they introduced mm. yellow, didn't they, to show yes. Detroit. As, oh, no, not Detroit, sorry, Los Angeles, as opposed yes. to as, as opposed to the uh, the very restrictive colour palette of the first movie, where so many colours that were forbidden, and this one they let yellow in. It's, it's quite obvious in all the material that was produced on it, all the merchandise, the yellow for Los Angeles, whereas Detroit was very much, but the red, wasn't it, pretty much? was. The yeah, well, I always liked it about the original because... Um, Obviously, the graphic novel is black and white and how they really stripped the colour out of the original film as well to sort of be almost be in keeping with that. I think if that had their way, I mean, if, if all the producers hadn't been meddling with it at all, I, I would actually love to see The Crow. Maybe one day they do keep talking about a reboot every now and again. And if they did actually reboot it, it's just a black and white film. That would be very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to go one stage further. I'd love to see an animation of the of the actual yeah. original yeah. comic book. And that was 100%. The- yeah, the very post-punk, gothy crow really try and almost slavishly follow that, almost in a, I suppose, a Zack Schneider three hundred kind of uh, way. Mm. I suppose to see that, but not even like, but not even as a live action film, no, as an animated film. But yeah, I mean, to me, I think City of Angels was the last good thing I saw on the crow after there was one or two good actual novels that were produced. There was yeah. one called Quaff the Crow that was homage to Edgar Allan Poe, which I loved that, that, that oh. came out at the time. Yeah, that was really good. But more onto you, Phil. So <laughs> why did you choose uh, the pop character that was in the, the sequel, Curve? Oh, that's a yeah. good question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or did you just like the name? Is it- I liked the industrial band from the US. I also loved Iggy Pop. And I always, when I read that Jesse O'Barr 
had actually based the original character of the crow's body on Iggy Pop. I was like, oh, okay. So I could see the homage there. So I was like, okay, yeah, really. And, and Curve sounded cool. So Ash picked, obviously, Ash from Ash Draven, and he he got in there quick and got the good name. And <laughs> I was like, I was called Lufrian or something like that. I was given... I think we gave you another name, actually, at the time. But just going back, it's interesting because, I mean, I mean, Curve is the name of my favourite all-time band, actually. Yes, uh, they're yeah. a great band. I was going to say that's another reason why I chose the name. Really? Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Tremendous well, no, industrial band. My favourite band, all-time yeah. band, the shoegazing band from the... Well, they went for the 90s until the, into the 2000s. Well, that's really cool. And the other thing I noticed, so, so your career, I mean, you, before you did pro wrestling, before you went to Hammerlock to learn pro wrestling, mm. you were involved with martial arts. You started off in martial arts, didn't you? Was it, was it uh, Shotokan you did first or was it Wado? Wadaru and then there was another sensei sort of tr- ended up teaching in the same school hall or church hall. So we got a lot of um, his crew coming down to do Shotokan as well. And um, yeah, it was good. So yeah, I got my black belt in Wadaru, uh, but did like do a lot of Shotokan as well by default. And I'm trying to make, is it Koshinkai, I'm, I'm trying to remember yes. the, the bit where yes. you did sparring, but you couldn't do closed fist to the face. Once yeah, the yeah, 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 Kyokushin um, or Kyokushin Kai, which is the uh, the knockdown competition. It's full contact, um, it. limited uh, equipment. Uh, they've got some uh, amazing leg kicks, and you're not allowed to punch to the face, but uh, yeah. you can punch. You can punch the body. But yeah, I mean, Kyokushin has been phenomenal in terms of what it's done for mixed martial arts. I mean, you have to remember a lot of the a lot of Dutch kickboxing is based on, yeah. on on simply Kyokushin fighters going over to Thailand and mixing up with the Thais and then bringing in Western boxing concepts. And they ended up producing what I would consider a separate martial art. I mean, Dutch kickboxers dominate K1. Oh, um, and I take so much inspiration for them when, when I teach Muay Thai, when I teach kickboxing. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so Kyokushin. Was- so, so, so what's your connection to Kyokushin? Well, so basically when the Shotokan guys came in, they started, they were doing that and they said, who wants to do sparring? And I had never seen, you know, I was like, well, it's all right doing the cutters and stuff, but I really wanted to see, well, how good, because honestly, when I, this is really shy my age now, when I started up, there was no UFC, there was nothing like that, but I wanted to see, well, how applicable is this because it's all right doing hey and doing the moshi gary but does actually any of this stuff work and we would so in the sparring it was interesting to see how some of it worked but there was actually two interesting points that came up quite quickly i couldn't punch to the face and i was like well really you gotta know what i I wasn't frightened of being hit in the face i was like i need to know what that feels like because until you get one of them so i've been i mean arguably it's worse being kicked in the face but until i felt one of them or got in that range i was like well how do i know if this is truly working and another thing that i actually did by accident i would it's not exactly meant to be good but i would end up gripping the gi quite a lot by the lapel and throw like gut punches and stuff and i was like this is yeah like i was almost doing dirty boxing for a boxing before i realized what it was and i was like what is this grappling thing that or you know why you know oh no you can't do that i was like but why can't i if someone's gonna grip you know one of the natural things to keep balance and i've seen this in real fights that people will grip hold of your clothing and stuff so i i started to do boxing to learn like sort of stand up and be able to get in close and see how punches work like that. And then I wanted to be, okay, well, I wanted to do grappling and we sort of, but I was a massive pro wrestling fan at the time as well. So I ended up, do, and Hammerlock had Justin Richards there, who was an amazing teacher who knew the amateur style. So I learned quite a few bits of amateur things because really it was sort of like trying to 
learn how to defend myself, an absolute passion for all different types of movement and fighting arts. And then just really getting, I'd sort of done drama in school and then just get really hooked by the feeling of being a wrestler and becoming this other character as well. So it's a, a weird, again, just followed my curiosity, followed my interest and ended up in pro wrestling. But yeah, it was sort of like, went from I, I i have trouble saying wrestling's not wrestling's not legitimate because i've got the injuries to show it but sort of going from there into professional wrestling and then after an hour 25 year career in professional wrestling last couple of years actually taking up brazilian jiu-jitsu and sort of finding my way back into it again yeah oh, that's excellent i mean that's i mean that again that's that's quite a complete journey i can i can relate to it totally i can see the way that you would go so you've had an initial interest in martial arts and then you've got the uh, you know, the traditional styles are, are an obvious starting point for many. I mean, because that's often mm. our, that's an our gateway drug in, if you like. Get more interest in finding out what's going to work for you or whether something works for you. Or you might get a wake-up call, as I did, about how impractical some of the stuff that you'll be training is in a lot of commercial mm. schools. And again, just like I don't wish ever to put on, put down pro wrestlers as being not legitimate, because find what, what you mean by legitimate. I don't like putting down traditional martial artists for being... Um, no! For being ineffective, because again, define what is traditional, and we've got a lot of experience with that too. But yes, it's often our gateway in, and then, but then we, we do a bit of experimenting, then we start doing our cross training. And I mean, it's good that you went straight to punching because when it comes to the hard skills, the hands are the most important tool. I love kicking, don't get me wrong. I was, as you know, very much, you know, kick based mm. person, very much Korean styles, very much Chinese wushu, all that sort of area. Uh, I loved all that. I loved that, and I love the performance element of it. But when it comes down to teaching very hard skills, frontline self-protection, hands are so important. And one of the best areas to go to get any form of attribute training and a feel for that is Western boxing. It's undeniable. Plus the fact it's so universal. This is often what I tell my clients. Go to Western boxing because there is so much that has been invested in that particular combat sport. And those who are involved in it, the motivation for most coaches in Western boxing gyms is to create good fighters. It's not to fill their yes. gyms. It's not to fill their schools with lots of students. The motivation for the majority of martial arts schools, whatever they are, I mean, I don't want to say martial arts, boxing is a martial art, but, but for the yeah. majority of other martial arts schools, should we say, the, uh, the motivation is often to fill those schools, is to get as many students as you can and to sell whatever's connected to the school to keep it running. It doesn't mean it doesn't produce good fighters. It doesn't mean it doesn't produce good martial arts. But the drive for Western boxing is always, if I, if I get a person to be a better fighter, fighter then the gym makes more money then everyone profits more from that that's the drive that's the incentive that's where the money's going it's like a lot of the olympic sports why we look to them as well because okay they're amateur sports but they're being invested in by countries to produce better athletes the motivation isn't to get bums on seats so to speak so western is such a good area for that for so many different things and the thing is it's done universally isn't it i mean muay thai yes. is fabulous it's a great area i love doing it again it's a professional sport again the motivation is to get good fighters in the ring um, and yes it's become more and more popular all over the world but it's not nearly as popular as western boxing so therefore i often say you know western boxing is a great attribute area to first go to you know if people want to cross train oh, yeah. yeah i say western boxing for the footwork for the hands and that and it's got such a fantastic heritage as well um but yeah it's interesting that connection as well because you going involved in full contact arts whether it's whether it's the kyokushin style sparring yeah. um even though it wasn't kyokushin itself it was a kyokushin style sparring so it's full yeah. contact sparring that you were doing western boxing you were interested in the grappling aspect and to learn from justin who i know is a phenomenal amateur wrestler you know unbelievable and, uh, 
Yeah, and a, and a great guy. I mean, a wonderful yes. guy. Very, very humble, very knowledgeable, very enthusiastic. I mean, he's made a fantastic transfer as a teacher. So what a wonderful person to go to as well. And as to say, amateur wrestling, out of all the sports and all the martial arts I've studied, is undeniably the most terrifying experiences I've ever been in. And I include that with MMA fighting and pressure testing self-defense. The yeah. rules that they set for amateur wrestling, whether it's Greco or freestyle, is terrifying. And even and the lack of geese makes it even more terrifying because it, they have to get you have to get those body holes, don't they? Is it did you have a similar experience? Yeah, I think oh, I'm trying to remember, but that it was actually a thing about gi and no gi jujitsu, but I think it really applies to any sort of grappling art with a gi and in wrestling, where they say anything with a gi or Brazilian jiu-jitsu with a gi is like playing chess. Whereas um, no gi jiu-jitsu or wrestling is like playing chess with a gorilla. And as soon as they don't like a move, they flip the table over. (laughs) And it's just like, yeah, it's absolute all out. It's like doing three minutes of burpees. It's absolute all out effort, balance, speed. Yeah. And like like you say, the grips are, are, are a lot more aggressive. You start to sweat. So you have to be really getting deep and re- learning your hip positioning. And st- it, it's yeah, it's an incredible art. It's it's very high on the old injury list. I probably reason my hips are so bad now is because of that. But I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing. But it was ju- just the way you learn about how your own body moves. The best way I've heard it described, it's like indoor climbing. Well, I described it as indoor climbing on a, another person. Again, it has its place. It's not complete, but you just have to look. You know, I love UFC, but I look at pride a lot more. And when you had the wrestlers and when headbutts and knees to a grounded opponents were allowed um, on a face down, these guys were just getting the neck crack, neck snap or getting an underhook, dragging them down to the ground and just nutting them or driving knees in. And I was like, well, you can't get more brutally effective than that. And it seemed to work time and time again. With those rule sets, it was pretty devastating brings me back to the times of Mark Kerr and yes but once they took the knees into the head uh, to a downed opponent knees to the head and the headbutt out that really pampered a lot of his career this this is what they were talking about in uh, the smashing machine that was a yeah that was quite a brutal time even though there were more rules at at that time when Mark Kerr was involved that's just it less rules doesn't always necessarily mean for a more brutal fight and this is always what I found about again back with the amateur wrestling I transitioned from BJJ to doing Mm. amateur wrestling i came into nice. late and it was me thinking yeah i've got the hang of this i've got the measure of this team i mean i had respect for wrestlers but i thought to myself i'm going to be in with everyday students there'll be casuals in there i've done six years you know submission grappling and you know done the gi the no gi prior to that i'd had a lot of experience grappling with different people but to go into a pure amateur wrestling class it was a different world for me it was yes. suddenly Oh my God. And it's so much more aggressive. I mean, that, that, yes. that, that's the thing. The moves have to be so much more subtle because you're penalized for moving backwards and things like that and for moving too yes. far backwards and that sort of thing. So your traps, your reversals and your, your counters have to be a lot more subtle. And when they're not subtle, suddenly all of a sudden you've got a guy around your waist and you're upside down. I have to get, get drop a name here as well. So while I was still living in London, I trained with a man called James Duncalf, who's an incredible, interesting guy. He's an artist himself, inc- incredible music taste, um, has a really sort of unique way of looking at the world. And his knowledge, like he he, he um, trains MMA fighters as well. But I was learning no-gi jiu-jitsu with him, then a bit of gi jiu-jitsu. But his wrestling knowledge as well is absolutely exceptional. And what I really like about the way he teaches Unfortunately, some, and you probably get this as well, you're trying to put it all together. Unfortunately, so many arts were splintered and pulled to pieces um, for so long. 
like this is why when I was doing jujitsu, I actually started to go back into wrestling again. I was so glad that James could teach me stuff as well because it almost feels like you're learning half the thing. Jujitsu is good for pulling guard, but there are situations where you don't really want to pull guard. So you need to learn the takedowns. And if you're, you're someone who got some skills in uh, Russian Sambo or Judo or wrestling, they're going to have an advantage because then they can control whether they're up or down. You know, it's like wrestling's only so good if you take someone down and then if someone knows Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu I've, I've done this myself you can have your way with them but if they know wrestling and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu they're controlling the whole pace of the fight as well so it was, it was nice to train nice. under someone yeah that knew the facet of going oh well if this happens I'll just pull guard it's nice to know well maybe I don't want that to happen no. maybe I want to go for a single or double maybe I can go for a neck crank they just he just taught me all those other well I'd still love to go back and learn with him some more but he taught me all of the what ifs as opposed to oh don't worry about it, which always scares yeah. me when you get that at a, a well, martial art. Well, I'll give you an example. I'd been in BJJ just for a little time and uh, wasn't uh, an amazing student by any stretch of the imagination. I was from <laughs> across training. I was training with some really elite people. And I remember there was a new student. It was a free session that we're in, like having an open mat at the time. There was only a few hmm. of them there. And it was Guy. And introduced this guy, this Polish lad. And he was probably a little bit smaller than me. And he just had a gi top on. And I was told, new, and suggested, do you want to roll? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll have a roll. And I said, you're new to this? How long have you been doing this for? And he was going, oh, no, it's like second letter. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm fucking, never, never, never listen to that one. You know, no, you know, ever, you know, no. The big, the, the big lie that you're always, I, I learned this thing about when people say to you, let's go live. You always yeah. be wary of that. And especially yeah. so, so going in, and most of the time I did BJJ, I used to like to play the top game. I did, that was, I was not massive on into guard work, even though that's where the science, that's where the art of, of mm. BJJ so much is. There's so much they developed with that. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. So, I remember I was wrestling him and, and I just used to start trying to play the top and I couldn't get him into guard. There was no way I couldn't get him down. I couldn't come up there. Like battling for ages and ages and ages. And of course, you do that kind of artificial start where you start from your knees. I, I, I hate starting that way because you, you yeah. never start a competition that way. So yeah. for me, you either should start in a position or you should start from standing. You know, I don't, they're starting from your knees. I just, mm. It doesn't really prepare you that way. But anyway, we're doing this yeah. kind of awkward sort of thing going on. And eventually it's him. He, he gets on top, he gets the top position and he subs me. Oh, oh. my God. You know, I've done it for a couple of years at that time. And I remember I turned around to, uh, to his friend who was experienced purple belt, I remember. And I said, uh, I said, He's, he, this guy's phenomenal. He's been only done it for two lessons. You sure you done it for two lessons? He goes, yeah. He's, he's done BJJ for two lessons, wrestling yeah, well, for ten years. <laughs> <laughs> so I went. Does make oh, a okay, okay. He's tap hands and immediately pull guard. So going back to what you were talking about, sometimes you can't play your game because some because yeah. eventually you're going to meet somebody who's going to have a better game than you at that area. So what makes it better is be able to play an area that they are the weakest at. No, everybody needs to be cross-trained. The best way I can describe it to anyone who's never done it, if you get stuck in a situation where, I don't know, you're a grappler, but you've never learned any ground, or you've got an, you're an amazing grappler, but you've never really done stand-up, and I've heard this time and time again, oh, I'll just rush them. If someone knows what they're doing, if they're experienced in that side of the art and you're not, it will feel like you're drowning. You, you, yeah. You'll be stuck in a situation where you suddenly like, oh, you can't even... 
and you'll just get taken to bits. I mean, it's weird. I ended up doing some grappling with a guy who'd been in the US Army. And in terms of, t- his wrestling was phenomenal. In terms of yeah. taking me down, he kept doubling me, single-legging me, arm-dragging me, whatever. Like, he's just, and he's, I couldn't do anything to him. His balance and reversal skills were incredible. But as soon as we hit the mat, I'd just pull guard and I'd work around him. And he just didn't know. And I kept getting him with the same armbar. And he was like, it, you could see he was getting so frustrated. He was like just trying to brute strength it. I'm like, no, actually, you've got to learn this. You know so much. But it's like, don't get, it's, yeah, you have to like know at least yeah. rudimentary striking just to know you're not getting yourself set up in footwork to get your head taken off. And that was exactly the same story I had with the wrestler guy that I explained to you about. Because the second time I did sub him, I, I subbed him with a cross choke from guard. But of course, he tried to slam me from that position, which again, wasn't allowed. But again, this is another thing, you know, when it comes to sparring, obviously with my own clients and students, careful about everyone understanding what not to do and to be safe in training and things like that. But kind of like from my own experience when I was cross training, I never used to like to call people out on that stuff until after the spar or something, because in my head, I was Mm. thinking I should know how to handle this. So occasionally you get subbed by somebody in a way where you go, well, Technically, that's against the rules, but doesn't matter. I'm still going to fight it, you know, or I'm still going to, you know, do my best to handle it. You'd sometimes get somebody who's got no experience at all and they start going for your eyes, but not out of a sense of maliciousness. You've got to look at it from their point of view. They're panicking. You're suddenly wrestling someone and they might not realize what they're doing. Yeah, they're flailing. Well, it's like exactly like being drowned. Like I was saying, people are drowning and they're like, they're just grasping for anything. I had that a couple of times, some really like first, second lesson white belts. I mean, I was only a white belt myself, but sometimes they lump the white belts in with the white belts and yeah, you get like a thumb really close to your eye socket. I'm like, oh, don't do that, please. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, but kind of things you say, afterwards and you talk about it that but so even the guy slamming me i was thinking there's no way i'm going to suddenly stop open my guard and stop and say you can't do that i thought no i'm going to tap him because i wanted to thought i was testing myself you know saying you know this i was getting into mma as well at the same time and this was so i thought well i've got to be able to do this where somebody tries to slam you so you know that's that's what happened and of course the tap came on but it proved that also that was his weakness um, to, uh, wasn't used to fighting from his back or wasn't used to fighting somebody who could fight from their back yeah. in, in wrestling and that's all about the pin so let's just take this um because obviously the biggest shift has been into performance beyond professional wrestling so you i mean i can see the connection and i, I think you saw it as well there's i definitely believe that pro wrestling could arguably be called a form of performance art it's often looked oh, down upon as low art i didn't like it with the uh, the director of the wrestler who also did black swan mm. regarded it as low art i don't like that sort of definition high art and low art does it emotionally resonate with you if it emotionally resonates with you then it's worthy i you know just because you're an academic and an elitist don't frown at anything because you're just ignorant in yourself then you could be passing up an, an opportunity or a curiosity or a pathway that could stimulate you and and make you ask a ask greater questions about the human experience but just because it's been linked in with something you're gonna deny it you know so no i completely well, yes i mean again it's, it's just regarding who you know i mean opera is a classic example isn't it it's considered to be high art but if you actually unpick the plot of an opera it's as superficial as you get hence the reason why we get terms like soap opera or space exactly opera. The idea yeah. is, so you know but now it's considered high art and fire interesting yeah. that you've done performance art and of course that which is often comes under the category of fine art you know, and you obviously saw that connection because in professional wrestling you have the blading they were doing it before performance art yes. you know i'd really be interested to hear that connection that you found well yeah i mean well they've actually published quite a few books about wrestling and, and how it is a performance art it's something that's been academically looked at quite a few times because like you say the authenticity of a performance and 
even though wrestling has always had that weird thing that gets uh, studied time and time again that you're bleeding for real, but at the same time, you're simulating pain. Yeah. There's that reality and authenticity sandwiched into what could be considered performance. And I guess for me at that time, it was my partner, my ex-wife was into performance art. And then I turned up to more and more festivals. And I, I don't know, I just, I, I really started to look at it more and more. And I was like, this is, this is really interesting. And, and the best way I could describe it with wrestling, it was like, if I could just take a single thing from wrestling, like say for instance, hitting the ropes. And if I could crystallize that and draw that and go, you know, what does hitting the ropes mean? How does it affect my body? How does my body affect the ropes? Why are you running when really you don't have to run? Why can't you stop the momentum? So there's lots of questions that you can say you can pose about. And then I fragment that out even more. It's like, well, what if you're stuck into a position that you don't want to be stuck into? People getting forced in situations in their life where they have to keep on moving and they actually want to stop and relax. And so I use like certain movements to ask bigger questions. And I did my first piece of performance art, which involved actually bleeding for real in it and then I don't know I just I sort of started to do more and more and then just asked more and more questions really and it was I, I just I just found it fascinating as of current I have done my final performance that I can see so far I might get back into it in a later date now I've sort of got on to acting which whole another story but just being able to ask those questions of myself and also within a performance as well and not really telling the audience too much well this is definitely about this I, i'd much rather them tell me what they felt about it and then because there's no there's no wrong answer you know you can even if you dislike it there's no wrong answer it's more about finding something that resonates with me a material or a movement or something that resonates with me and then giving that over to the audience let that resonate with them and then they can pass me some emotion back and then we see where it goes. But that's the easiest way of explaining differences and the similarities between wrestling and art for me. And you've been, you've, you're involved with immersive theatre. There was the Marissa Karniski's uh, Tarot Dome. That was amazing, uh, yeah. yeah. So, And, of course, the pro wrestling is a form of immersive theatre in itself as well. So yes. the extreme style that we were involved in. Yeah, and you talk about how different people can take different interpretations from something from an experience. Well, you're giving it more than that, aren't you? Because you're making them become part of it. Yeah, it's more than just like in back in the circus that we used to have a thing called audience participation. But this is more than that. You're expecting that person to really interpret it for themselves, aren't you? You're not necessarily telling them what to do. And that almost happens the same with, with the pro wrestling, I suppose, as well. But choosing which side you want to support or, or, well, or what yeah. you want to be as part of that story. And it could change any moment because there's a degree of improvisation that is going on there. Well, there was a big thing as well for me, like the reality of illusion or the, the reality of authenticity. So one of my earliest memories and why I really got into pro wrestling outside of seeing the American stuff was Giant Haystacks was in Walthamstow. And I remember the match didn't even really happen. And he's walked to the ring. He's having a row with the punters. And one of the punters threw a glass of beer at him. And he's waded into the crowd and started like setting about this punter. And then the other wrestler came out and tried to pull him apart. And it's all sort of kicked off. And like the audience did that very thing where they've gone very quiet because they don't know if it's real or not. And it was years later when I spoke to Tony Scarlo about it. I mentioned this memory had stuck in my head. And he said, oh, no, that was one of his gimmicks. He used to do that as an easy night and would, would 
would always get the reaction that he wanted. So, you know, the promoter was more than happy with it. So I bought that for years yeah. as authentic and real. Yeah. But in a way, it was. And this is the one thing that I've always questioned with performance art, acting, pro wrestling or whatever. If you are feeling a true emotion, then does it matter that if it's I'm going to do the whole speech bubbles now, if, it, if it's fake or not? Because that really does annoy me these days that people sort of batter, like wrestlers are sort of coming out and going, oh, but it's all fake or whatever. So stop doing that because at the end of the day, people are there immersive fear you walk into like some of the punch drunk promotions and stuff you walk in there and you feel it or if you're watching a film you're feeling it you can be feeling a true emotion so i don't care if the cameras stop rolling and then it, the you know the actor gets up and he's fine and all stuff like that in those moments you're feeling something true and real so stop trying to have to batter yourself in the head with this parrot going oh but it's all fake though but it's all well, fake. This, I mean, but it's okay. yeah, it really annoys me I mean, this is the thing why I suppose a lot of the time, you know, I'm always, I always look back to fables and parables and, and stories and novels and fiction because we're in a time now where documentaries are more partisan than ever before. I mean, I find that this this <laughs> huge prolific yeah. amount of documentary making that is borderline propaganda. We know for, for various different sides. Now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, really bad. You know, you know, the day of objective, you know, documentary making still is out there and there's some wonderful yeah. people doing it but it's certainly less bombastic than the partisan stuff that's coming out there, the propaganda sort of based stuff out there. So we're seeing a lot of that kind of thing going on at the same time. Whereas what I love about fiction is that anything, whether it's drama, um, whether it's literature, you, you can, you can start with the premise of saying, look, this isn't real, but within that you can put far bigger truths. You know, you can, people can pull from that far, far bigger truths because you've already started with the framework of that because people put their own personal experience into it. You're as you say, you're touched on people's emotions, you're touched on people's experiences. So within that you can use, and this is the reason why we have allegorical stories. This is the reason why we've yeah. got fables, why we've got parables, because people understand that that's, that's it. The story, storytelling can probably get closer to the truth in many ways than a straightforward documentary than a straightforward non-fiction work don't get me wrong i think it's really important to make a distinction between real and fantasy but there's just so much um takeaway that you can get from something where you let your guard down by saying look this is a fictional piece but then you pull out of it and you go my goodness so much in here that we can talk about and and sometimes also it lets people take the barriers down especially if you make something very allegorical if you make something where especially a science fiction film or a fantasy film or a, a surreal work well, by doing that nobody has to start going they're not if they're not looking at things that are immediately recognizable to their tribe you know if there's something they're seeing there yes. it's not saying okay well that's you know well, quite clearly i've got to be on that side because of this because of that when you strip all that away when you make it very allegorical when you use symbolism when you use um, other other areas on there you can pull from that the raw truth you know that's why art is so important well, we're all coming from the same, well, we're not all the same consciousness, but we're all coming from the same realms of human experience. So it doesn't matter how fantastical the tale, like my favourite <coughs> author of all time is Clive Barker. And he, yeah, you know, he, some of the worlds he describes, some of the things that happens in his books, 
are so fantastical. You you look at this author and what he talks about. He's talking about identity. He's talking about the nature of life and the nature of death and then what happens afterwards. It's At the end of the day, we're all rendered by the same values of human experience. So, like I say, it's all about that emotional resonation. If, if you're getting that, or emotional resonance, sorry, if you're getting that, then it it's it's great art it's it, we're you know storytellers from the earliest time even if we were just sort of creating a, a fairy tale of you know be careful of going to the dark or talking to strangers or being fearful of the other it's still creating a parable or something that we we can learn from at, and have an emotional feeling from you know it's like last time i checked no wolf really did talk or dressed up like grandmother but that's still quite a strong emotional well, hook with that you know I, one of my favourite writers um, of all time is Angela Carter, and she did a fantastic right. job with the Red Riding Hood mythology and the werewolf mythology. And even when she did her in her translation of, of uh, Charles Pirot's fairy tales, and it's the unhappy ending Red Riding Hood that she translated. And at the end of it, there's clearly a signal towards her adult works, which were inspired by fairy tales, and in the Bloody mm-hmm. Chamber, and then of course the, the film The Company of Wolves, which comes from that. And she says that real wolves are often easy to spot. The most dangerous type walls a smooth skin and wear their fur on the inside and she's talking about the whole danger of adult and child predation and male and female predation it's all in there and you can see that very much in the red riding hood fable and she really ran with that because it was all about stick to the path about how when red riding hood comes of age she can break away from the path and she can conquer the wolf herself. That's what she does through several of her short stories. But Angela Carter took that myth and did a wonderful job with it. It certainly works well from a self-protection fable point of view. And again, the other interesting thing that you see, you talk about, you know, with, I can see comparisons with martial arts training when we talk about going into other areas and pulling out truths when you don't have to worry about whether it's real or not, is this whole issue about will it work? You know, we keep keep coming back again. A lot of your truth, a lot of your journey in martial arts it's interesting how you went on a path to test things and find things out that were going to help you it probably has a connection to some of the masculinity stuff that underlying theme for your podcast um slash towards masculinity um so it's interesting you go on that path and then you end up with performance-based martial arts which is pro wrestling you ended up with that so you went through full contact to a performance-based martial you ended up going to something which is worked but has got so much other things in it that are very real as well you know so it's interesting that you found that and i also look at that with cross training why i advise with attribute training so you do you do your self-protection it's important that you keep grounded in self-protection and have the soft skills and understand about controlling fear and the legal side of it and everything else that builds up to that point and dealing with the aftermath and dealing with all those sort of issues but when it comes to the actual physical part of it it's very very basic from a self-protection point of view but i advise cross training as well because i say that you go into the cross training and it's great to be able to go into the boxing gym and yeah. to box other boxers working on other boxes and you're not thinking about is this going to work on the street is this going to work yeah. in self-defense? Is this going to, you're not, you immerse yourself in the sport. You, you immerse yourself in the art, which is very real in that sense. You know, it's very physical. It's full contact. It's still a sport. It's still a manufactured environment. It's still not an assault, what you're dealing with. Mm. And you're still not dealing with the same dynamic that you would get if you're in an assault situation. You don't circle each other. You don't make this kind of space and things like that. It's just a straight on asymmetrical anaerobic yes onslaught between two people that's over in a relatively short length of time and has a total different dynamic altogether so 
it, it, which is a different environment that you get in a combat sport, but it doesn't matter because you go into that other environment and what you quarry from that is an experience which will then immediately benefit what you've already been learning in self-protection. That's an interesting comparison to what you're talking about when you say about, say, with pro wrestling, but also in performance art and people being able to pull from that. Is it real? Where's the boundary? What's real? The blood's real. But maybe you're feigning the pain, as you say, like, and you're acting through a process. Mm. You're, you're doing is a manufactured setup, but you're also bringing out raw feelings. You're bringing out real expression. I can see that parallel. And I do want to quickly mention the fact that, that you worked at the Double R Club, which I think is <laughs> it, it is brilliant. Done your research, and, mate. <laughs> so, well, just to say that, well, the Double R Club obviously is part of my research that I do in self-protection, of course, is true crime. So immediately the Bethnal Green background on that. Is, yeah. The name comes from it being owned by the Crater twins Freddie and Ronnie Cray one of the UK organized crime groups in the 50s and 60s and now it's a place for theater and performance yeah. cabaret and um, what, what was your experience there and, and what the atmosphere that's what I want to hear about well I'm a huge fan of David Lynch the director yes. so yeah. when this got started up and it wasn't just to deal with Twin Peaks it was the whole of a Lynchian backstory and for me yeah. I, I was like well this is absolutely incredible this is a, a wonderful experience so just as a fan and then as many things happen in my life Someone, Rose Fawn and Benjamin Loose, the two owners, they got talking to me. As usual, I'm a pro wrestler is always a great starting point. And I got mentioned, oh, would you like to help out in a performance? So I did, and it went further and further. And then at some point, someone said, do you want to give Boylesque a go? So again, I don't view myself through any particular lens. It's thanks for mentioning like the whole thing about the masculine with slouchings with masculinity. But I can see quite a big through line for me through um, the hyper masculine and how masculine identity is presented through different lenses so i just guess going from the body very aesthetic based pro wrestling side going into boylesque and trying to be this sort of funny sort of it, i i don't like anyone that tries to do it too sexy there needs to be a sense of humor and comedy to it as well so i was very much into this idea of like okay i'm being sexy but we're both in on the joke that it's not really sexy there's a joke to it and there was also one thing i loved about the double r club a lot of the acts and performances had a very dark edge to them so the ending of my boylesque performance had a, a big spoiler for twin peaks in it but uh it was nice to do this different side of myself so i'm learning to dance i'm learning to disrobe i'm learning to make eye contact with the audience and present a different side of myself and i felt uncomfortable doing it to begin with and i, I like seeking discomfort i like being outside of my comfort zone so it's something that over a time i did that and then ended up performing in a uh, soho in the shadow lounge for the best part of five years with uh, a show called boy lex and that was a monologue and boylesque performers as well. And then even then doing the monologues, I can see how that started to inform me wanting to go into acting and theatre. So there's these weird connections, but working in the... Uh, Bethnal Green's Working Men Club, it was absolutely awesome venue. The audiences were absolutely incredible. And like I say, if you're a fan and a performer at the same time, like huge fan of Lynch, so being able to perform a Lynchian style act was absolutely incredible. I loved every second of it, especially when it's sort of poking the fun at the masculine as well. Yeah, that wonderful, wonderful experience. And I'll always treasure it. Now, I joined Lynch's work. I've, I've got I've got, I've got a few issues with The Elephant Man, but that's probably a, a cultural thing. Um, oh. I do like the film. I have to admit to liking the film, but because but the historical connection to it and culturally, yes. it's very much a, a middle-class perspective and on show people and showmen. But still, I can't take it away from... It was it's beautifully made. And also, that's probably one of the least Lynchian of, of Lynch's oh, yeah. films as well, because it's very 
it's arguably it's less surreal than all the others. I mean, it's not it's it's got a very you know straightforward narrative. I mean, you know, the imagery and the average person that watches much more mainstream. It's much more um, you've got a normal linear narrative and. All the surreal aspects of it can be passed off as dream sequence. It's not like oh, Mulholland Drive. Yeah, you know, exactly, exactly, and all the things that that he's not known for, even even a razor well, head and, and things like that. It's, well, uh, I, I, lo- I love the fact he made a straight story to show people. Yeah, well, I'm more than capable of being this director. I can do this style. Yeah, he's one of the most fascinating characters I think I've ever read about. His forays into transcendental meditation, the way he talks about developing ideas. I, I love the fact that he doesn't give answers to his films and people go, oh, is it about this? And he goes, oh, would you tell us what it's about? And he's like, no, because it's not important what his description is, because then you're you're destroying it for everyone else. If it can only be that one way of looking at it, then someone else might have got a completely different interpretation. and You've ruined it for them. It's like, you know, just enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy the experience. I always think that's interesting when you have an artist who is at the top of their field, uh, like a, a great director like Lynch, who will do, as you say, a, a straight film, demonstrating mm. their ability to be able to do that. And it's interesting to see how you've gone through the physical side of art, whether it's been the martial arts, whether it's been the professional wrestling, whether it's been the performance art, and now you're coming back more into acting, which obviously acting has got you know a lot of different areas, but still it's coming closer to a more mainstream, broader appeal in many ways but don't you feel that bringing all those sort of unusual experiences that you've got that has helped your acting role because I know that you've just done uh you've just recently fulfilled a a lifelong dream of playing a villain uh, (laughs) and and I don't know about the villain characters Velos Velos I say just to conclude this discussion because we're gonna we've got to have another one because I really really want to just (laughs) when you went into playing this role this this dream role I know, certainly from your pro wrestling background, that you had characters that were inspired by the recent Lynchian-inspired Hannibal series character oh, yeah. that certainly influenced one of your wrestling gimmicks. And you also had some, some inspiration, of course, prior to that, the Patrick Bateman inspiration was in there from American Psycho. Yeah. You kind of had those two areas. Has some of that sort of come over into the Velos character? Is it a total departure from those roles? Right, that's a really, really good question. So I've been very lucky that Stu Allen, owner of EWW, and Tanya as well, have gifted me some really good ideas to develop characters. So Philip Bateman, after he became the lady killer, because I, because I was the playboy, and then it, which was more yeah. of a comical role, and then the lady killer was a lot darker. Then from that, it was the prophet. So then yeah. it was very heavily involved in religious cults and stuff, which I'm super, super interested in, that nature of mind control. So... I have to have an in when I'm doing acting. This might sound frightfully pretentious now, I'm sorry. But when you're acting, it's about the human experience. If someone can memorise all the lines, that's great. But you have to understand there are certain aspects of acting and performance that's always going to be out of your control, even with wrestling. And for me, my happiest moments in wrestling and when people go, call it out there. Or if someone's remembering a sequence and something doesn't go quite right, usually they're the most realistic, authentic looking bits because you're having to think on the fly. You can lose yourself in the moment and then find yourself again and enjoy that moment so for me with Velos you look at some of the stuff that he does in this if it wasn't filmed correctly and wasn't acted correctly to a degree it would be very aggressive and very exploitative 
there's a certain tragedy in this guy. I was talking to my partner now, Abigail, and when we were talking through the role, I was like, she mentioned it as well. He's just a rung on the ladder. So he's going to have someone above him that he's got an answer to. So Ooh. he's had a lot of his humanity, his humanity driven out of him. So at one point, this guy was a child, an orphan or whatever. I'm, I'm giving him a backstory to a yeah, degree yeah, yeah, where yeah. he's had this crushed out of him. And now he just sees people like cattle and just fit for either being used in the sex trade trade organ harvesting or to be eaten or being given away as like dog food and stuff like that so i've for me it's not i could just very play it one note like oh, 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 i am a russian gangster i am going to carve people up but it's like for me it's like well there's this sense that he is like hannibal the way mads mickelson played hannibal that there's a certain sense of tragedy in him as well that he's had all of this thing that's stripped away and also this hyper masculinity again going back to this that he is this boss that just proves everything to everyone but at the same time he's probably going to have these quiet moments where he might even doubt himself grabbing aspects of my own experience like like with wrestling to the best of my knowledge i'm never going to be or never have been a religious cult leader but when i was playing that side of philip bateman he wanted to be loved he wanted to have adoration, but he yeah. wants his blind adoration and eventually becomes a, being a prophet. Speaking the word is not yeah. enough for him. He wants to be the word. He wants to be God. So I really saw that side of him. And when I do a Velos or Bolos, he's providing this service. He wants to answer to no man. He wants to be the king of it all, but he can't be. So it's finding that tragic nature and working it into the performance as well. And not just being stuck onto this one note thing or also just yeah. pulling apart a script and going, OK, now when I say this word, I'm going to say it with anger. I'd much rather have a backstory in my mind. I'd much rather have a composite of who I'm playing. And then in the moment, I know the words, but let the words come out. I've worked alongside and seen this in performances as well, where every time they'll hit the same sentence the same way and wait for the same reaction. Whereas I in between takes have found a lot of enjoyment by okay this time i'll say it like this or this time oh i forgot that one word and unless the director's not like no you have to say it like that well let's just go crazy let's just run with it how does it come out now maybe you interrupt me in this one and you know i'll work around you i'm not oh you stepped on my line how dare you do that it's like no in this moment let's find out how that runs because that's the most exciting about in it losing it in a moment i couldn't stand by going oh we're going to go on rails and we've got to hit it every single time exactly the same yeah it's one, wonderful it. dynamic yeah absolutely as yeah. we know throughout the history of, of performance uh, certainly on film some of the some of the greatest performances are often improvised where you get this back and forth going on between yeah. um, really talented actors it's gone down in history loads of examples of that but it's interesting how you find that motivation for a villain uh, again looking at from their point of view all the best villains have to have their own justification. Yes. There's plenty of fun in villains who are bad for the sake of being bad. And there's plenty you can do with that. And we have lots of childhood villains that we can enjoy for that. But the most interesting ones, the ones that have got the most, uh, I think I've got shares and interesting today. I've just said it too many times. I sound like Jim Davidson. Um, the, uh, <laughs> there's age me. Uh, but what I find best Shakespearean yeah. villains are the ones that deliver these soliloquies that justify what they do. Uh, Richard III's loads of fun, but King Lear's Edmund is always one of my favourite villains of all time because he immediately starts from the off. He's been dealt a bad card in society uh, and therefore uh, take nature's lead in many ways. Well, Nature is his goddess. That'll be his guiding hand. And that's what he, he feels he's enacting. In many ways, he's enacting 
nature's law. Obviously, he's twisting it to his own bias, but that's yeah. his way of looking at it. He's being a Machiavelli. He's being, a, in many ways, a Renaissance man. Some of the great villains, you know, find that have to have that justification. You have to pull it out of there. If you can get some, you know, get even some empathy from the audience is great. But bringing that right round again, drawing the truth of that and how that can be used elsewhere, certainly within the self-protection world, most of my time I find when I'm teaching soft skills is trying to explain to the people who I'm teaching that the motivations for the person they're facing, because most people just think that other people think like them and they think that they can act like that. And so often you're trying to say that this is someone coming from a total different social background to you, someone coming from total different mental makeup to you. They've had, a, you know, the person that we're often training ourselves to defend against is someone who's had a lifetime of violence. They know how to use violence. They're not interested in what you consider to be right or wrong. They've decided that you're their target, their prey, and it's their justification. So I've often argued almost empathetical aspect of self-protection what i mean is is that you've got to kind of understand them as best as you can well, you understand the nature of what you're facing then you how, how can you deal with that problem a lot the thing is you're, you're given up when you learn like skills you're given a weapon and it's up to you how you choose to wield it and a lot of going back to sort of abusers and stuff a lot of abusers are unfortunately they've been abused themselves that doesn't excuse their actions now there's always a way to stop the cycle but there's a i mean actually we were, we're gonna name a mutual interest here jeff thompson i remember getting and watch your back and that was one of the things that actually sent me on the path of trying to cross train as well because i remember reading that and going wow there's a whole load of stuff here i don't know about but what he was talking about, like you're given weapons to wield. And I find people who are morally just, they understand the power they're given and it gives them a sense of confidence, but not arrogance. And they yeah. won't use it unless absolutely pushed to the brink. Whereas unfortunately, abusers tend not to be given those skills, but they'll just try and assert dominance. But as soon as they are faced by somebody who has been given skills and ultimately don't want to wield them because they know of the power or are very reticent to wield them because they are aware of the power and the responsibility, you'll find that a lot of these abusers and bullies will back off real quick because, again, they're faced by someone that not only has the power to do damage, but they also have the knowledge and the responsibility not to do it. And that's very frightening for an abuser because someone's in control there. Whereas, yeah, yeah. a lot of abusers are out of control. They're just repeating a cycle. It's the nature-nurture argument. <laughs> well, yeah, where yeah. certain people are just switched on, and I always think that some people have been almost being like the Terminator in, in their approach. It's certainly that moment. You can go into their yes. backstory sociopath where they've been been through a cycle of abuse maybe they're a straight psychopath where they've just gone through life and they've just learned that their might is has got them everything that they oh, wanted sure. they, what yeah. they, they've wanted and that and that's what they do so but it doesn't matter in that particular moment your job is to try and get out of this situation as safely as you possibly can and you can see it unfortunately when you show people say footage of these kind of incidents you can see people who are being attacked and the person being attacked is still trying to talk down the situation when the yes. fight is on it's gone way yeah. past that point. Yeah, and, well, yeah. And you're going, they're just taking damage now. The other person, like that kind of Terminator thing, cannot be reasoned with and will not yeah. stop. That's what you're dealing with and trying to get that across. And, you know, often people get confused with, I'm not going to go into it now, maybe another time for another discussion, but I have a thing called short-term, long-term self-protection. It's discussed on my podcast anyway, so my listeners will be dog sick of listening to it. People <laughs> get confused with what should be and what is a lot of the time yeah. in, in life. Having to deal with what is... And then we can work in the long term to be what should be. 
Yeah, I mean, I was always taken by one of the first chapters. I think it may even be the first chapter of Watch Your Back, where um, Jeff Thompson's dad. Yeah, yeah, Watch My Back. Sorry, Jeff Thompson's dad gets hit, and he said he was taken out of a fight even before he realised he was in it. And that sentence always really stuck in my head. Exactly what you just said there: that someone can be like, "Oh, I'm going to be able to talk this down," and they get smacked in the face or knocked out, and they're being kicked on the floor, and they don't. They they weren't even aware at any point that something was going to happen. No, no, no. Jeff does a great job of describing that, and he comes across a lot in his fiction in his drama I mean, people don't realize just the, the strong connection all the time between martial arts no matter how realistic or full content is and performances it's quite fascinating how you see that connection between performance oh, thanks, and, and, and martial arts right uh, and again the classic example is with jeff and how he brings that out and that difference between yes you know the, what you want the situation to be and what the situation is Right. Okay. So it's been great having you on the show. Uh, Mate, it's absolutely flown. Thank you so much. Yeah, I loved it. Definitely. I look forward to speaking to you again and uh, and inviting you back on the show. And best of luck with all your future endeavours. It's a fascinating mm. career to follow and I uh, hope to see a lot more of it. Best of luck with Velos. <laughs> well, fa- thank you very much. I mean, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Time's flown. And whenever you want me back on, mate, it'd be an absolute pleasure. Where can we find out about Where you? No, okay, so the number one all-stop shop at the moment for me, I'd say go on my Instagram, which is uh, Philip Bedwell. We have one L in the Philip and two in the Bedwell. I would say I have got a website, which is www.philipbedwell.com, but that's currently under maintenance because it was just performance art, but now I'm slapping in my wrestling, my acting, and my podcast on there as well. So I would say look at that, but Instagram's the best one for the moment. And on top of that, slouching towards masculinity. You can find that pretty much on all good podcasting sites or you can go to podbean.com slouching towards masculinity it's there as well or if you want to see me on twitter it's all capital letters st masculinity but to be honest with you you just get like this week uh, another show's been released so yeah every every tuesday at five o'clock in the morning another show drops it's been as regular as clockwork since i started it it's still going to be regular as clockwork you're coming up in a couple of weeks believe it or not as well jamie so so, yeah you can check out jamie there as well but yeah they're, they're the major ones instagram philip bedwell is probably the best ones catching me on thanks a lot phil um no, an absolute pleasure wonderful to have you on the show um please check phil out a uh, show selection towards the masculinity is a must listen to show there's a huge variety of different people on there fascinating ideas if you want to hear more of this please go straight there it will be in the show notes uh, along with thanks, uh, phil's other links okay Cheers, thanks buddy. a lot phil have a good one mate take care Cheers, all mate. the best bye now bye Matters do not seem to be more real in any area of hand-to-hand combat than when we are clinching. Whether it's close-quarter fights within enemy trenches or defending one's own, wrestling in a pre-modern warfare shield wall, fighting off a sexual predator or controlling the stand-up and ground range in mixed martial arts, the beginning of Brazilian jiu-jitsu contests, the infighting of boxing and Muay Thai, or contests of dominance between pack animals, the stand-up grapple is possibly the most primal expression of interpersonal conflict. A universal norm can be seen in primitive and sophisticated societies from Africa to Asia to Europe to the Americas of individuals proving themselves by either throwing their opponent or pinning them. And it seems somewhat apt that this would be the fighting range that took Phil down the path that moved him into entertainment and performance art. Phil mentioned that his varied artistic opportunities came from having a strong background in professional wrestling. We can see that although Phil is a man of range with a desire to continually expand, there are connections. Even boylesque, after all, is a modern-day variation on burlesque, 
which shares the same musical, circus, vaudeville, fairground and carnival cultural heritage as professional wrestling. It also tracks that a reoccurring theme in Phil is the pursuit of authenticity. This is where professional wrestling offers a unique quality. Since its roots as a submission fighting sport, many notable pro wrestlers have fluidly switched between staged events and legitimate fights. It's a subculture that has its own hybrid category of sports entertainment that no one really understands, including the workers and promoters. Phil's story about the giant haystacks gimmick demonstrated that latter fact, and many a time during my short stint as a promoter, I heard workers arguing over whether something done in another promotion was real or a work. Much like the acting culture that Phil is currently a part of, the wrestling world has always been filled with a mixed bag of individuals who live their gimmicks, drew strict professional lines between their characters and themselves, and every variant in between. Likewise, accomplished stage fighters mix freely with legitimate fighters as they share the language of the pro wrestling bout. Outside of the actual matches, the storylines or angles as they're known in the profession regularly take advantage of real-life events occurring both in society and more often than not, the wrestlers' lives. This often extends to the point of bad taste in the eyes of some, and to others, it is simply the more extreme example of what Americans might call meta-art. To paraphrase and butcher a quote, Perhaps it is knowledge to know that pro wrestling is fake, and wisdom to know it is real. Phil literally bleeds for his art, whether it is in the form of blading or gigging in the squared circle, or, when shed of his theatrics, in the raw exposure he brings to his performance art. Regardless of the artificiality of the medium he's using, he's being sincere and seeking a personal truth. It's a familiar path for martial artists, as can be seen in Masoyama's Karate Kyokushin that translates as ultimate truth. Acting on screen might be seen as his biggest departure in search for authenticity, as Phil is now portraying a completely fictional role, now present through the added illusions of filmmaking. However, it just presents another challenge to find the truth. Martial arts and drama have a rich historic relationship, influencing each other in many different ways. This subject alone could fill several podcasts, and has been touched upon in my Martial Movie Massacre series. However, for now, perhaps these words from the late great Peter Postlewaite might resonate with Phil in his current career location. Quote, Acting is all about telling lies. We've made this deal that we will tell you a tale and a pack of lies, but there will be truth in it. You may enjoy it, or it will disturb you. End quote. Don't forget to check out Phil's links in the show notes, including Slouching Towards Masculinity, his excellent podcast. His interview with me on the show is the first one in the 2021 season. And you can catch up with me on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram, where I'll be posting up regular news of monthly webinars that you can participate in and other events. If you want to get in contact to give feedback on the show or request information on my services, please check out the website clubchimera.com. That's C-L-U-B-B-C-H-I-M-E-R-A.com, where you'll see a huge back catalogue of written material, including regular lesson reports. If you enjoy my podcast, please rate and review them on iTunes, Stitcher, Podtail, Owltail, TuneIn, Podplay, and anywhere else you download your shows. If you have trouble finding the listing, the show is still listed as Jamie Club's podcast rather than the Club Chimera Marshalls podcast because I'm awkward like that. Next episode, it is my honour and privilege to talk to another multifaceted martial artist, Chris Wilder. Chris has led an extraordinary life and career from political and public affairs consultant to legislative staff to Franciscan friar, membership in the United States Martial Arts Hall of Fame 
to critically acclaimed author of numerous books. We will be discussing processes in teaching and training. Thanks for listening. <laughs>